I want to tell you a little bit about the person who's going to be sharing with us this morning and also this evening and tomorrow evening. I'm so glad to be able to uh, get us started again in this habit we've had over the past years of trying to invite scholars, Christian scholars, uh, who God has called to different areas of study. Uh, I think they really enrich the life of the church. Uh, Christians who have really devoted themselves to digging deep in different areas of, of the life of the church. Uh, I think we benefit greatly from people like this. So uh, I met uh, Dr. Richard uh, this past fall at a Mosaics conference. This is a conference that happens every three years and uh, it's uh, focused on the idea of multi-ethnic, multicultural, uh, doing church uh, that way. Uh, and it was so refreshing and so encouraging to see other congregations that God is putting the same kind of burden in their hearts, that we uh, have been given this ministry of reconciliation and that uh, the church needs to be at the forefront, not dragging its heels uh, in this thing. So uh, let me tell you some of uh, his story. Dr. Richard was born and raised in Philadelphia. Uh, he met his wife there. He served as a pastor for six years in California and that's where his son was born. He and his family have moved overseas in 2006 to train international church leaders, first in Europe and later in the Middle East. Uh, Dr. Richard is currently living in New York City, partnering with Edge City Church and with an online training center called Mosaics Multiply. Dr. Richard has an MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary a Master in Professional Studies from the University of Maryland, and a PhD in Intercultural Studies from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So uh, I'm thrilled to have uh, God uh, bring us a scholar today who hopefully is going to really hit something that's uh, very close to the heart of what we feel God has called us to as a church. So I don't want to take up any more of your time, but Dr. Richard, if you would come and share with us now. Thank you so much. Good morning, church. And Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Happy Palm Sunday. I am uh, sorry that I'm here on Palm Sunday and not preaching about Palm Sunday. <laughs> but uh, Pastor, I really appreciated Pastor Rendell inviting me here to talk about culture. Uh, it's a topic that's very dear to my heart and that I've studied a lot and that I've experienced a lot. And so I came prepared. I came wearing my cultural outfit. So I don't know if you knew that or not, but this is a, a Korean pastor's outfit. Uh, my background is Korean. My parents are from South Korea. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, but for six years in California, I served at a Korean church. So for every Sunday for six years, I had to wear a jacket and tie. Um, and it's not like an optional thing. I had to wear it, even, when, even teaching the youth group, everything. I had to wear it every Sunday. And um, there's cultural reasons behind that. In the Korean church, in the Korean culture, um, it's a sign of respect. And so we come into the house of God and we show respect to God. We give God our best and we present our best to Him. And also in the Korean culture, there's a very strong hierarchy of, and uh, uh, honor to those who are older, those who are in higher position. And so uh, dressing more formally kind of respects that hierarchy. And so there's multiple reasons why I really had to wear a suit and tie every Sunday for six years. And so I came wearing, um, wearing my Korean pastor's uniform this morning. Uh, but I, I realized that, you know, there's other types of cultural dress. 
um, uh, you know, button-down shirt and blue jeans, as we saw Pastor Randall this morning. And that also communicates cultural messages that um, God accepts us as we are. It's not a matter of what we look like or what we dress like or who we, what our job is or our position is. But God has covered us all with the blood of the Lamb, and that is enough. And so those types of cultural messages, that we, we come as we are, and we come simply uh, with faith in Christ, and that covers over everything else. That's an important, uh, even our, the way we dress communicates that as well. Now, you're in a multicultural church, and so the problem is that all of these millions of cultural messages sometimes conflict with each other. I can't wear more than one outfit on a, on a single Sunday. Uh, you might try. But they, so sometimes those cultural messages conflict. And so what do you do about that? What do you, what do you wake up in the morning on Sunday and what do you choose to wear? Um, and that's just one question out of a million questions that culture answers for you. And so to, today, this morning, tonight, and tomorrow night, I'm going to talk about culture and talk about it based on my own experiences being a Korean American, growing up in the States, living overseas, and teaching international leaders. Um, and my own studies at uh, Trinity. And uh, we're going to, for this morning, we're going to focus on God's Word, as particularly from uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. But before we get started, let me, just, um, let me just say one more word of prayer and just open our hearts to hear God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to hear your Word. We thank you that you have called each one of us just as we are. Lord, that we don't bring anything to earn our way into this room. We don't bring anything to earn our way into your presence. And yet we come and we bring you the best of what we have. Lord, we, we thank you and praise you that we even have this privilege to come before you. And even with all of our flaws, with all of our faults, Lord, to give you wor a worship, and give you praise that you alone are worthy. Lord, please open our ears, open our hearts, help us to hear your word and transform our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Let me read this for us. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, back in, in the 1990s, there was a scientist working for Procter & Gamble who was experimenting with a, a chemical called hydroxypropyl beta-psychodextrin. Now, one day he came home from work and his wife asked him, did you quit smoking? And he was a regular smoker, and at first he thought it was some sort of kind of reverse psychology trick to get, for her to get him to quit smoking. But he said, no. And she said, well, you don't smell like smoke, that's all. Apparently, hydroxypropyl beta-psychodextrin, those molecules have the property of binding onto volatile hydrocarbons. Now, essentially what that means is that it traps odor. 
So spray this stuff on anything and it prevents it from smelling. And so P&G saw this incredible opportunity to make a new house cleaning product. And so in 1996, they marketed this thing called Febreze. Now the thing is, Febreze absolutely bombed. P&G couldn't figure out, because the stuff really worked. You spray it on anything and the odor goes away. So why weren't people buying it? Now, after spending millions of dollars in marketing and research, eventually they found the problem through an interview with one of their test subjects. Now, she was a woman who owned nine cats. So she kept a tighter home, everything looked clean, but the smell of the cats was just unbearable. You, 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 could smell, you, you didn't even have to walk through the front door. You could smell them even before you entered the house. And when they interviewed the woman, they asked her, so how often do you use this Febreze product? And she responded, oh, you know, whenever the house smells like cats. And so they asked, well, how often is that? She said, oh, I don't know, maybe once a month. They couldn't believe it. They were ready to pass out from the stench of the cats. And so finally they asked, do you smell anything now? And she said, no, I don't smell anything. And finally they found the answer. When they, uh, the mystery was solved, that what Procter & Gamble failed to realize was that the fact that when the human nose is bombarded again and again by the same odor, it essentially makes our, our nose immune to that particular smell. That's the reason why you can't smell your own body odor or your own bad breath. That's also the reason why a woman with nine cats has no idea that her house reeks. So it totally makes sense. Why buy a product that eliminates odor when you don't even know that you have an odor? So once P&G realized the problem, they added these fragrant perfumes to, to the product and remarketed Febreze as an air French freshener, not just an odor eliminator. Today, Febreze sells over a billion dollars in product. Now, I read this story from Charles Duhigg's book called The Power of Habit, and I wanted to share it with you all today because it reminds me of how culture works. The culture you live in is so ingrained in the way you think and the way you behave and the habits that you, you prefer that you don't even realize it's there. You can't smell your own culture. And it's like the story of the older fish who said to the two younger fish, how's the water? And they responded, what's water? Our culture is so much a part of our very existence. It surrounds us. We don't even realize it's there. But no matter how immune you are to your own odor, other people definitely know what you smell like. And so does Jesus. And so we need others. We need Christ to help us to see our own culture. And one aspect of culture that I've seen in recent years, particularly in our country, that's become stronger and stronger is this culture of divisiveness. Now, it seems like it's becoming harder and harder to live peacefully, even with close friends, even with family members, because this divisive culture is separating us. And so I want to talk about culture today based on Matthew chapter 15. And as we go through Matthew 15, I'm going to focus on three cultures that are presented in the passage. First, I'll talk about the divisive culture of the disciples. And second, the diminishing culture of the woman. And then third, the dog under the table culture of, of Jesus. So first of all, let's talk about the divisive culture of the disciples. Now, the passage in Matthew 15 is one of the most controversial passages in the Gospels because Jesus does something we can never imagine him doing. He calls this woman a dog. Now, it seems so uncharacteristic for Jesus. 
and so cruel for this woman who is in such need that a lot of us have a hard time even believing that it's in the Bible. And so how do we explain it? I believe a careful reading of the text can help us to better understand what's going on here. So I want to go through the text again and point out some of the details. And so I tried to emphasize the details on the slide, so just, just follow along. Now in verse 21, Jesus went to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And this is a Gentile, non-Jewish territory. And in verse 22, the woman is specifically identified as a Canaanite woman, also a Gentile. But even as a non-Jew, this woman has great respect and submission for Jesus. And he says to, her, he says to Jesus, he addresses him as, O oh Lord. And then a strange thing happens. Nothing happens. Absolute silence. Verse 23 says, he did not answer her. And it emphasizes the point by adding, he did not answer her a word. We, now, we have to understand, Jesus is not just sitting here and trying to figure out what he's going to say. We, have to knew, we kind of have to assume that Jesus already knows what he's going to do. So what is he waiting for? Well, we see in the very next sentence what he's waiting for. He's waiting for the disciples. He wants to see how the disciples will react to this poor woman in need. And so imagine his disappointment when he sees the disciples and it says, he came to him, they came to him begging, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now let's just take a moment and appreciate the details here. The contrast between the woman's desperate need and the disciples' Suppose the disciples' hard-hearted response. The woman came crying to Jesus, and the disciples came begging to Jesus. The woman wants mercy, and the disciples only want Jesus to deny her of that mercy. The woman's daughter has real suffering from a demon. The disciples' supposed suffering is that their annoyance at the woman's crying. And what a disappointment these disciples must have been for Jesus. Now, it doesn't exactly say what is going on through Jesus' mind. But because of these hints in the text, we can kind of assume that the next words that Jesus speaks has less to do with the woman and less to do with Jesus' own opinion of her and more to do with the disciples and what the disciples are thinking. And so he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, as harsh as this sounds, I believe what Jesus is really doing, he's not speaking out of what he's thinking about her. Rather, he's projecting what the disciples are thinking about her in order to serve as a rebuke to the disciples. And there's an additional little hint in the text that gives, uh, gives us this, this hint that, that this is what the disciples were thinking and not what Jesus is thinking. It's this little word, only. Now, it was absolutely true that Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And it was even true that Jesus was sent first to Israel. But it's not at all correct, and it's not, not biblical at all that Jesus was sent only to Israel. So we know that Jesus doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make slips of the tongue. So if he added this word, I believe it's not an expression of his own misguided theology, but an expression of the disciples' misguided theology. And so if we understand this point, then it's, Jesus is not necessarily speaking out what he thinks, but he's more likely speaking out what the disciples are thinking as a rebuke to them. Then we can understand his next statement as a contrast 
as well. Verse 26, he says, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch, what an insult. There is no justifying, there's no minimizing the, the, the strength, the harshness of this insult in the statement. He just called her a dog. But our own desire to make Jesus look nice and to minimize the insult just misses the point. This is a big, fat, ugly insult because Jesus is revealing the disciples' own ugly heart to themselves. And so here's the divisive culture of the disciples. It's not that they think they are better than everyone else. You know, most of them are simple, uneducated men with no reason to boast in themselves. But now they have the truth of the gospel. And now the very Lord of the universe is right by their side. And so while they may not think of themselves as better than everyone else, they might be tempted to think of themselves as writer than everybody else. Well, I know, okay, I know writer is not a real word, but it should be a real word. Because the, while the disciples didn't know everything, and they certainly weren't perfect, they were more right. They were righter than the Gentiles, and spe specifically this Gentile woman. And so this attitude of righter than you, this attitude of, you know, I'm just trying to uphold the truth, gives the disciples this divisive culture so that they even treat this woman like a dog. Now, the divisive culture of the disciples is the same divisive culture that has kind of grown up in, in recent years. We may not consider ourselves better than everyone else, but we very often consider ourselves righter than everyone else. Especially as Christians, we can fall into this attitude. Just like the disciples, we do have the truth of the gospel on our side. We do have the very Lord of the universe on our side. And so that same attitude of just, I'm just trying to uphold the truth. It's easy to look down on other people who have got it wrong, and they do have it wrong. But not only to look down on them, but to treat them like dogs. But it's important to understand that there are specific cultural factors that actually might amplify this, this dynamic and will cause us to be more divisive. And so, you know, as, as Pastor Randall explained, I just graduated from uh, the PhD in Intercultural Studies program at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So I could go on and talk about different elements of culture all day and how they influence uh, us as Christians and how they influence even the way we think about Christianity, even influence our theology. And I'm thankful that we actually do have more time to talk about those things tonight and tomorrow night um, and how culture can actually contribute to this divisive, uh, divisive nature and the cultural difference uh, specifically in these two areas called analytic thinking and holistic thinking. Now, Richard Nesbitt, he is a researcher and professor in psych social psychology who wrote this fascinating book, The Geography of Thought, How Asians and Westerners Think Differently. Now, in the book, Nisbet examines many of the cultural differences between the, the, the ways of thinking, how, uh, and one of them is the difference of thinking between analytic thinking and holistic thinking. Now, according to Nisbet's research, in general, Westerners are more analytic, and Asians are more holistic. Now, we have to understand that these general categories of Western and Asian, they're huge generalizations. That they don't really begin to capture all the diversity that exists between these two vast regions of the world. But it's helpful to look at these general principles so that we can better understand the influence of culture. And so let me explain more. In general, Westerners are more analytic. 
They break, thing down, break things down into individual parts and figure out how the parts work. They focus on the main, uh, um, the main object that's in the center of the attention. Asians, on the other hand, tend to be more holistic. They view the world not in terms of individual objects, but entire environments, having more awareness of the background, understanding the relationships between objects and their environment. And so there was one experiment, actually developmental psychologist Anne Fernald and Hiromi Morikawa explained and compared Japanese mothers and American mothers. And these mothers, they picked a focus group that had babies who were 6, 12, and 19 months old. Now in the experiment, they asked the mothers to just clear away all their other normal toys, and they introduced just a few items, a stuffed dog, a toy pig, a car, a toy car, and a toy truck. And so they asked the mothers to just have a normal time of play with their children and, and with the toys, and then the researchers simply observed their behaviors. Now, in the results, they found that the American mothers used twice as many naming labels as the Japanese mothers. They would be like, okay, this is a car, and look, see, here are the wheels. Look at them go around, they're spinning. That's analytic thinking because they're breaking down the objects, naming them one, and one, one by one, and examining them. The Japanese mothers, on the, the other hand, were much more holistic. They, could, they wouldn't even name the car as a car. They just uh, held it up and said, vroom, 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 vroom. And instead of examining the car or even playing with it as a car, many of the mothers would practice with their children, giving it properly as a gift. They, they would do this role play with their little babies. See, I give it to you. Take two hands and receive it. Say, say thank you, very polite, good job. Now you give it to me, very good. Training their children how to give and to receive. Now Nisbet concludes, American children are learning that the world is mostly a place of objects. Japanese children, that the world is mostly about relationships. So maybe some of you are asking, which one is better? But that's totally a question that someone with analytic thinking would, would ask. Of course, we need both. Sure, the American children will grow up and know a lot about the different parts of a car and know how it works, but the Japanese children would grow up knowing how to use a car in the context of relationships and how to use it to serve other people. And so this analytic thinking has very much influenced American Christians today. We're very good at picking things apart and figuring out what's right and what's wrong. And I praise God for that. We need analytic thinkers in the church to know what is true, to know what is false, and to stand up for that truth. But American Christians have also become very vocal in pointing out pretty much to everyone else what's wrong with them without prioritizing the relationship that's in the context of that. And so the real point, the real problem that this cultural element makes is that it makes it really hard for us to listen to others. With our analytic thinking, if one issue is wrong with someone, then we become preoccupied with trying to uphold the truth and correct that wrong issue. And so it makes it impossible to listen to the people that we disagree with, even if they might be, have valid and important points on other issues that we need to hear. But we need to be able to hear and listen to people that we even disagree with. Now, that doesn't mean we have to compromise on what we believe. That doesn't mean we have to just agree with everything we, that they say. But our tendency is that if we disagree on one issue with the person, then we discount the person entirely that they're wrong on every issue. They're just dogs under the table. 
And so what applies on a societal level also applies on an individual level. Now think about your reaction when someone disagrees with you, when you disagree with someone else. When we see that someone is wrong, our natural tendency is to try to prove them wrong, not because we just have something against the person, but because we have a value for truth. We want to uphold the truth. That's, but that's our analytic thinking drives us to do it more and more without thinking about the relationship, the holistic context behind it. And so it may be helpful for some things in order to be able to analyze the truth and uphold it, but it can be weaker in other things. For example, even if the person you're arguing with is wrong, is completely wrong, and particularly about this one issue, you know that they're wrong, that issue is still important to them. That issue still has meaning for them. And so by persisting in trying to prove them wrong, you may be communicating the fact that you don't care what's important to them. And in fact, you don't care about the person at all. If you don't hear them or not willing to listen to them or not willing to understand from their perspective, you don't really care for them, you don't even love them. Now, the principle can apply in so many areas of our relationships with friends and relatives and coworkers, but I want to focus on one example of application in particular. I believe that this point applies directly to the parent-child relationship in particular. For parents, there's so many times that you think your kids are just wrong. And honestly, so many times they are really just wrong. For parents, um, you, you may not understand that if they're wrong and what they say and what they do, even the mistakes they make, uh, that all those things, you, of course, you want to correct them. You want to help them to live in the right way. But those things are also important to your children. And because they're important to them, they should be important to you as well. So in all your attempts to show, that, show, show your kids that they are wrong, in your sincere motivation just to uphold the truth, you may be communicating that you simply don't care what's important to them, that you don't care. And by extension, you may be communicating that you don't even care about your kids at all. So in order to think holistically, you have to prioritize, prioritize not only what is right for your children, but what is important to your children. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, you don't have to agree with everything that they want to do or say, but if it's important to them, then it should be also important to you. Now, for the children, for kids, especially for youth, you may think that your parents don't know anything about you and don't really understand your situation at all. And for all their annoying attempts to try to control your life, you may wish they would just leave you alone. But you have to understand that it's their analytic thinking that, helps, that gets your parents so motivated to try to pick apart the pieces of your life and analyze it and make it better for you. And it's because they love you that their analytic thinking is in overdrive and, and annoying you to death. But here's the challenge with holistic thinking. Think about that Japanese mom that plays with her baby, even at a young age, teaching her baby how to be a polite and caring human being. Now, for you youth and children in the room, the question is, have you learned that lesson, how to be a polite and caring human being? Make this as a challenge for yourself every day, at least once a day. Instead of trying to get something from your parents, thank them for something you've already received from your parents. And you can be like, 
well, thanks, Mom, for the ride. I know you really went out of your way for that. I appreciate it. Or you could be like, well, Dad, thanks for cooking dinner tonight. That was a great meal. Now, in analytic thinking, you think, why would you thank someone for something that you know you're going to receive whether you thank them or not? What good is that? What, what, what does that gain me? If I thank them, I'll get it. If I don't thank them, I will still get it. But it's not the point of the analytic thinking. The holistic thinking looks at the entire environment, the relationship in the background. By doing these little things of saying thank you, of being kind and sincere, it b- builds the foundation of a caring relationship between you and your parents on a holistic level. And then, when the whole background of the relationship gets stronger, that everything else will be better as well. And so that's our first point today, to look at the divisive culture of the disciples. Our second point then is the diminishing culture of the woman. Now, Jesus' shocking statement of referring to this woman as a dog, uh, dogs, dogs are, uh, like a dog under the table, this makes more sense when we take it as a lesson of Jesus trying to teach his disciples. But the fact still remains that he, did, he didn't speak it to the disciples, he spoke it to the woman. And so how do we understand what Jesus is specifically doing to the woman? We can understand what's going on better when we can compare the passage in Matthew 15 with the parallel passage in Mark chapter 7. And one of the big differences is that while Matthew was written largely to a Jewish audience, Mark was written largely to a Gentile audience. And so there's, for example, no mention of the son of David, Uh, in Mark's version, because that would have been more meaningful for a Jewish audience of Matthew. And instead of Canaanite woman in Matthew, it refers to the Syrophoenician woman in in Mark, because that detail would have more relevance to a Gentile reader. One major difference that we have to pay attention to is that in Mark, there's no mention of the disciples at all. So if in Mark, Jesus is not talking to the disciples, Uh, then whose harsh thinking is Jesus trying to correct? And I believe it's the woman's own harsh thinking of herself. Now think about the audience. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. And so Jesus' projection of the ugliness of the disciples' own heart would be a rebuke not only to the disciples, it would be a rebuke also to all the Jewish readers of the book of Matthew. Any Jewish reader would also be tempted to think that the Messiah is for the Jews. Gentiles, get in the back of the line. And so Jesus is trying to correct not only the disciples, but later on as the book of Matthew is written, it's a, it, show, it serves as a corrective for all the Jewish readers of the book of Matthew. Um, but in Mark, Jesus does the same thing for the Gentile readers. For this Gentile woman, Jesus may be projecting her own thoughts of inadequacy. After all, her people were the enemies of the Jews. For her and any Gentile reading this book, they would have felt like the, they would have had this constant experience of feeling pressure living under the Jews, of facing ethnic discrimination, feeling like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And so for the Jews in Matthew 15, their culture told them that they were too big, righter than everyone else. But for the Gentiles in Mark 7, their culture told them that they were too small, wronger than everyone else. And so perhaps Jesus is trying to correct the woman's own opinion about herself. And in the end, she gets it. She has confidence that even even if she is not worthy of Jesus, like a dog under the table, that Jesus' grace is so much greater 
It's so much greater than even her own unworthiness. And Jesus, he doesn't disappoint. He doesn't just toss her some crumbs. He lifts her up and gives her a very seat at the table herself as a true child of God. Now, for some of us, our cultures tell us that we're too big, that we look down on others through our divisive cultural lenses. But for others of us, our culture, our society, everything around us, even our very own thoughts within us, tell us that we're too small, that we are less than everyone else. We are slaves to a diminishing culture. Everything that we see and feel and experience tells us that we are not worthy, that we are like dogs under the table. Now, I know that this can happen to anyone in any situation. Some of you may be in toxic cultures at work. Some of you may be in an oppressive relationship in your family or among your friends where they're constantly making you feel smaller and smaller. Some of you, myself included, are ethnic minorities. In this country, you may feel like you have less value, less opportunity, less of a, a voice than majority culture. Or some of you may feel a pressure that you give to yourself, that you tell yourself that you're not successful enough, that you're not beautiful enough, that you're not important enough, or not whatever it may be enough. But whatever pressures people in general feel about the diminishing culture around them, I believe that the youth in America today feel that pressure 10 times more. The preteen and teenage years is this unique time in life where all the pressure from friends and school and community and family is just multiplied exponentially. And I saw a powerful example of this in a movie that came out on Netflix a few years ago. The movie is called The Half of It. Now, I know it's just a movie, Real life and real high school life is not like in the movies, but I thought that this movie did a pretty good job of portraying this diminishing culture, that I wanted to share it as an example. Um, that in, in perhaps there are some people, uh, some youth and adults here that today can resonate with this type of diminishing culture that we're talking about here. But before I get into the movie itself, I, I need to explain a little bit, um, a little bit of a footnote. Now, I was kind of torn about whether or not I could really share or use this as a movie illustration uh, for the sermon. I really enjoyed the movie. It was smart. It was profound. It was moving. Uh, it had a, a deep characters and a captivating story, but it was really negative. It had a really negative portrayal of Christians. The movie takes place in a small American town called Squahimish, and most of the people in the town go to church. And in the movie, the Christians are portrayed as very close-minded, unintelligent, and just generally blind to anything that's going on outside of their own little lives. And the characters who are intelligent and deep and compelling are either self-declared atheists or backslidden Christians. So by the end of the movie, for sure, the, the viewer is rooting for the non-Christians. And so I was really torn about using this movie as a sermon illustration but I decided to do it for two reasons. First of all, like I said, it was a really good movie. Uh, I think there's a value to art in a movie that can be enjoyed by discerning viewers even if you disagree with its message. And secondly, I think this is the, exactly the kind of critique that American Christians are facing today. Like I said, we, we don't smell our own culture. And so when we see a negative portrayal of Christians like this, our first reaction can be to be defensive. Like, of course, it's so unfair that Hollywood is per persecuting Christians like that. 
But on the other hand, this is really how non-Christians think about Christians. And so we need to listen to their critique and take it seriously. Okay, so that was my little footnote. Now on to the movie itself. The half of it is about a Chinese-American girl named Ellie Chu, and who, she helps this boy named Paul to win over the girl of his dreams. And so she writes letters for him. He, she teaches him about the books that she likes. She coaches him on what to say when he meets her. And he texts messages to the girl on his behalf, all in an attempt to get the girl to be with him. Now, of course, the story is much more complicated than that. Uh, but that's not actually what I wanted to talk about. I just wanted to focus on Ellie Chu. Now, as far as I could tell from the movie, she is the only person of color in the entire school and probably the only person of color in the entire town. She is super smart and funny and a deep thinker. She sees the world with an amazing perspective. She was born in China, came to America at five years old. Her father has a PhD in engineering, and he came to this little town to work in the train station, thinking that he could work his way up to be an engineer somewhere. But speaking English with an accent, not being from around here, it's 12 years later, and he's still working as the station manager of Squahamish. Now, Ellie is faithful to her father. She still misses her mother, who had passed away some years ago. But with all the complexity of her character and her background and her thinking, the rest of her high school sees none of that. To them, they see Ellie Chu and diminish her down to the single phrase, chugga chugga choo choo. Now, a few times in the movie, you see this pickup truck full of uh, high school kids, and they pass by Ellie as she's riding on her bike, uh, and they yell out to her as they pass, chugga chugga choo choo. Now, everything about her, all her thoughts, her desires, and her characters are all diminished down to that one aspect of her identity. There was another scene where she goes to a party, and as soon as she enters the room, everyone yells, the Chinese girl. Everything about her, all of her thoughts, her experiences, her pain, her, 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 her contemplation, all those things diminish down to the one thing that people see, the Chinese girl. Now, maybe some of you know what that feels like. For you youth students in middle school and high school, middle school and high school can be brutal. If you stand out in any way, kids have no mercy and they make you feel terrible about it. And when you're surrounded by a culture that diminishes you, telling you that you're too small, you're nothing more than that one little thing that everyone can see, eventually, you may start to believe it yourself. Now, there's one scene in the movie where Ellie has been hanging out with Paul, helping him to get the girl of his dreams, and he's gotten to know Ellie and, and appreciates her as a person. But yet again, some high school kids pass by on their pickup truck, and yet again, they yell out one more time, chugga chugga choo choo. And like thousands of times before, Ellie was just going to ignore it and let it pass. But this time, Paul was right by her. And so he runs after that truck and he throws a rock at them and yells at them, who are you calling choo choo? And so they, the truck takes off and they, they flee for their lives. And Paul, Paul, he ends with this classic line, yeah, you better run. And you can see the expression on Ellie's face after all these years of being diminished to the Chinese girl. Finally, someone sees her. Finally, someone stands up for her. Finally, someone lifts her up. 
At the end of Matthew 15, Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. For every time you feel like a dog under the table, remember that Jesus' grace is so much greater than all of our weaknesses. Those who would judge you, your friends at school, your peer group, people at work, your own family, when you even judge yourself, realize that all of them are unworthy judges. Anyone who thinks that they are worthy to stand in judgment over you can't even smell their own odor. But Jesus has lifted you up. He has transformed you into a child of God and has given you a seat at his table. Through faith in Christ, through his unlimited, unending grace, he has lifted you up and the diminishing culture no longer has a grip on you. Now, so far, we've talked about the divisive culture of the disciples and the diminishing culture of the woman. And now I want to talk about the dog-under-the-table culture of Jesus. The disciples, um, when, when you think about it, Jesus did some amazing things to lift the disciples out of their divisive culture. And he did some amazing things to lift the woman out of her diminishing culture. So in order to see how he do, does that, we have to compare the details of the woman's request to Jesus' um, the woman's request to Jesus and compare that to the disciples' request to Jesus. Now, the disciples, in their kind of self-centered and misunderstanding of Jesus, make these direct and specific demands of Jesus, as if he's there to do their bidding. Send her away, for she is crying out to us. The woman, by contrast, she doesn't dare to tell Jesus what to do, but in humility and reverence, simply presents her, her request, shows her need, but completely leaves it up to Jesus how he will fulfill that need. Have mercy on me, O Lord, she says, and Lord, help me. Essentially saying, whatever you want to do, I'll just take it. It's like an honorific submission of agency. Now compare the woman's attitude to Jesus and uh, her submission to him and the reverence that she gives to him with Jesus' own attitude towards the woman in verse 28. He says, O woman, great is your faith. Now, of course, Jesus is not calling her Lord, but you can see that it's almost mirroring the same language that she used about him, lifting her up in the same way that she lifted him up. And he treats her with the same honorific submission of agency that she had given to him, not mentioning the specific actions that he will take, even for her own request, but he simply says, be it done for you as you desire. Basically, the same attitude of, Whatever you want me to do, I'll just do it. This is how Jesus broke through the divisive culture of the disciples and the diminishing culture of the woman. Jesus himself voiced the misguided theology and the judgmental attitudes of the disciples, in essence, allowing himself to look like he was wrong in order to correct the disciples and make them truly right in order to break through their divisive culture. And Jesus lowered himself before the woman in order to lift her up, in order to break through her diminishing culture. And Jesus does the same thing for you. Jesus was immersed in this dog-under-the-table culture. It's not just the disciples who want to keep this woman down, but everyone at the time was trying to keep everyone else down like dogs under the table. The synagogue rulers were oppressing the synagogue members, but Jesus set them free. 
The people were bound by illnesses and demons, but Jesus healed them. Women and children were put at the back of the line, but Jesus called them forward and saw them first. Sinners and outcasts, excluded and ashamed, but Jesus ate with them and he loved them. Everywhere Jesus went, people were treating other people like dogs under the table, but Jesus lifted them up. But at the end of the story, the tables were turned. Now Jesus was the one who was arrested and falsely accused. He was the one who was beaten with rods and tortured with whips. He was insulted and shamed and spat upon. Jesus was treated like worse than a dog under the table. And yet he submitted himself to all of that out of his great love for you. Are you like the disciples? Just wanting to stand up for the truth. Of course, that is a good and necessary thing. But also realize that Jesus didn't cut himself off from those who are wrong. He stood right by them, suffered, and even died for those who were wrong. Jesus went to the cross and allowed the entire world to think he was a condemned criminal. Let the entire world think that he was wrong so that you and I, who were truly wrong, could be made right again. And so we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and receive more and more of his grace. Or are you like the woman, feeling like the whole world is trying to diminish you, to push you down like a dog under the table? Well, tell me, let me tell you something. Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. He feels your pain and he lifts you up. Jesus sets you free. Jesus allowed himself to be treated like a dog under the table in order to make you a true son or daughter of God with an eternal seat at his table. So in order for, so for you also, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and trust that all that he has done on the cross, he has done to lift you up. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word and the way that Jesus so masterfully works, not, even, not just in the actions, not just in the behaviors, but in the deepest core regions of our heart, dear God, convicting us of our own attitudes, convicting us of our own judgment of ourselves, dear God. Lord, there's some of us who are, are like the disciples, and we love the truth, and we stand up for it, and yet we forget the relationship of those that we know are wrong. There's some of us who are like this woman, who every voice around us is telling us how small we are. Lord, I pray that you would break through both of these cultural messages and lift us up. Heavenly Father, help us to see the, the grace of your Son, that he allowed the world to think that he was wrong in order that we could become right. So let us have that same attitude of grace and unity for those around us. And he allowed himself to be lowered and lowered, diminished and diminished, like a dog under the table, so that we could have a seat at your table. Lord, when the world tells us that we are small, when the world tells us that we are worthless, Lord, let us listen to your voice instead, that you call us as your precious children, as your sons and your daughters. You've paid for our position at your table with the very blood of your son. Lord, we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, that word. Uh, 
I believe it's very important as we worship together and as we make bringing ourselves before the Word of God a part of our worship, that we also provide time in our worship to respond to God's Word. I think God never wants to simply inform us. He wants to transform us. So uh, I'm sure God's been uh, speaking to you through the message today. Uh, maybe you're one of these people who has not yet drawn near to Christ, and maybe this is the day you can do that. Uh, we want to give you the opportunity during this time of response. Maybe you already know Christ and you've been reminded as Jesus reminded the disciples of some area in your heart that just isn't right. Um, and you need to come and ask him to forgive and restore and change that in your heart. Whatever it is God has laid on your heart, uh, respond to the message we have heard. Let me ask you to stand, and uh, there'll be some people that are come here at the front. We'll have people on either side of the stage. Uh, come and just share whatever God has laid in your heart, and let them pray with you and encourage you. Uh, come while we sing this final song. <laughs>